the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Hey, good afternoon. Greetings. Thanks for coming along today for the Thursday edition of The Ride Home. Uh, the, uh, what is this, February 22nd. Very nice. It's a, certainly a rainy day out there. Uh, uh, listening earlier on, uh, someone said, hey, if the, all this rain would have been snow, it would have been 10 inches or so. So, we have dodged a... Um, a proverbial one because uh, who wants to? Well, I guess some people do want 10 inches of snow up there in Seven Springs and whatnot. Uh, Kath is away today. Uh, happy uh, happy wedding anniversary to Kath and uh, Eric. They are um, off celebrating. So um, good. I'll be with you here today. So so thanks for coming along. You know, um, <clears throat> I've been thinking about this uh, lately. Uh, like a, I think a lot of you, I was raised in the church, and um, then when I reached a certain age, I stepped away from the church and kind of went out on my own. And if you did that, you know what that's like. And then at some point, you come back. I'm grateful to come back. This was in New York City. I I came back many decades ago. And once I began going back to church, those age-old rituals that I had learned as a child, marking the, the turning of the year, once again, informed my life and gave me a, a, a fuller meaning to the cycle of the seasons and my own relationship to them. And I, gra- I gladly welcomed those, those turning of the seasons within the church. And so now the year for me was, of course, not only divided by winter, spring, summer, and fall, but it was marked by the expectations and the, the worshiping of, of Advent leading up to the fulfillment of Christmas, followed by Lent and the solemnity and the solitude of the coming of the dark anguish of Good Friday that transformed into the glory of Easter. Birth and death and resurrection and endings and renewals were observed and celebrated in ceremonies who, once again, there was an awakening, experiences that made me feel that I belonged. I was back, not just to a neighborhood and a place, but to a larger order of things, a universal sequence of life and death and birth. And going to church and really belonging to it did not solve life's problems. (laughs) You know how this is. I mean, if anything, it seemed to escalate again. And around that time, it gave me a sense of living in a larger context, of being part of something greater than what I could see through the tunnel vision of my own personal foibles and concerns, my own sort of narrow vision of what life was. And so once again, as an adult, this time instead of a child, I now look forward to Sunday because it meant going to church in community. And what was once strange, not only felt natural, but also essential. 
what is essential in our lives, right? I think about this often. We are here together in community, right? Community with Christ in our lives. But, you know, of course, as you get older, (laughs) age kind of takes its place and and, and does things to you that are strange, that, that are odd, and so a few years ago, I was complaining to a friend that I was often awakened at about 3 o'clock in the morning, and then I would not get back to sleep. And so this friend said to me, um, if I really wanted to know why I was awake, and, and I did want to know, because for the days after these sleepless nights, you know how that is, if you sleep poorly, the day after is always a grim ordeal. So my buddy, he told me that God in awakening me at 3 or 4 a.m., wanted to talk to me. And so with my watered-down, newer theology that I had revisited, I thought that God in some way was, you know, poking fun at me. And my friend said, well, God woke up Samuel in order to talk to him. Why do you think that the Holy One won't speak to you in your darkness? Do you think that God has changed? And so since I knew that God had directed me out of a a dead-end street through my misbegotten 20s and early 30s, I thought that listening for God on a sleepless night might well be worth a try. And so that following night, after that realization when I woke, I got up, I went to a place where I was warm in the coldness of a February night. And so with a a tablet and a pencil in hand, I I spoke inwardly and I said, Hey, God, here I am. What do you have on your mind? And to my utter amazement, God spoke back to me. And so I recorded the answer, the questions. I recorded the questions that I was asking God. And then what I knew God was answering back to me. And a real conversation followed. And of course, if you've done this and you know this, the conversations continue many nights and many days during these past many decades. And that's how God works. I think about those years that I just kind of wandered and did my own thing. Grateful for that time as a young idiot, but even more grateful to come back into the grace and the forgiveness and the power of the God of the universe, the Lord and Savior of us all, Jesus Christ, speaking directly to me. How can that even be? The wonder of that. And I know if you do this as well, in prayer and meditation, he is there for you, for all of us. And that is the great mystery of faith. We'll take a quick break, come back. We're going to talk about uh, the change in the seasons. Our our good friend Doug Oster will join us. He's a gardener extraordinaire, always opining about nature and beauty and that. Stick around. We are Pittsburgh's Christian Talk. It's on the radio at 101.5 Word FM, W-O-R-D. But you already knew that. Yesterday it was announced that the Hayes Eagles had produced their first egg of the season. And and truly, I mean, forget about Phil the groundhog. When that happens, I think, oh, truly, spring is here. And on top of that, in my daily tromps through the neighborhood with my dog, 
I see this, and I bet you do too. The crocuses are popping up, the daffodils as well. Um, I, I know it's only February 22nd, but it does feel like spring is here. Doug Oster is back with us, editor of Gardening with Doug. Doug is all things uh, seeds and beauty and growth. Hey, Doug, how you doing, friend? I'm doing great. And, you know, you mentioned those bald eagles. Somebody my age, we thought bald eagles were going to be extinct. Yep. And so it's so thrilling you know, to see the Hayes Eagles and to see them out at North Park, to see them out in Indiana, uh, it's just whenever I see one, I'm just, I always still get excited. Me too, yeah. Okay, so yeah, speak into that because, I mean, they kind of were, I mean, they were on the deep decline because of DDT, right? Right. You know, that was uh, Rachel Carson basically, you know, sent us on the right path there and just feel very blessed that that happened, that they, you know, saved the Eagles. And as I said, just to, just to see one, you know, soaring with that, you know, distinctive white head is just amazing. It is amazing. Yeah. A couple of years ago, I was in South Dakota. I was driving a car back to Pittsburgh, and I was literally in the middle of nowhere in South Dakota. And there were, uh, there were five, literally, five, I took photos of this, five bald eagles perched on a dead tree. They were feeding wow. on a nearby deer. I got photos to prove it. I mean, I've never seen so many. You're fortunate if you see one. I saw five together, which was super cool. So... That is super cool. Yeah. Anyway, Doug, uh, you are here, and um, uh, you know my introduction. Uh, it, it is true; it does feel like a super early spring. Yeah, yeah. You know that getting lots of questions from people because this time of the year, you know, the temperatures are going up and down, and when we do have things that sprout, you know, like you said, crocuses, and I've got daffodils up with yep. the buds up, yep. and if it gets super, super cold. Sometimes those buds can freeze out, but it has to. It, it's unusual. It's maybe one in seven or eight years, and probably more now that things have kind of you know our winters have, haven't been quite as tough. But the the thing is, there's really nothing you can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so you just have to, you know, you're gonna you're gonna do more harm than good if you try and cover them up. You know, people are always sending me messages like, "Well, I'm gonna cover them in mulch, or I'm gonna put something on top of them." I said, "You're just gonna break them." Yeah. You know, these plants have been going through this for a long time, uh, hundreds of years, maybe longer, and they'll figure it out. Worst case scenario, absolute worst case scenario, and it's with the daffodils, you do get some of the early ones and you'll get a little what we call bud blast, and then you've got to wait till next year to see those uh, specific flowers bloom. But there are, you know, there's later varieties, mid-season varieties. I personally, I've got some that are, that pop up right next to my house that I inherited. They're, they're planted way too close to the house. They get the warmth from the house. They always come up too early, but no matter what, even when it gets to ten degrees, they still bloom. Hmm. So excellent. Don't 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 worry about it. Nature will figure this all out. Yeah, exactly. So I think about this, Doug. So you do see this early, you know, change in temperature. Now, of course, there are places in this world. Look, you look at California. I mean, I I do believe, you know, that climate change is a real thing. Well, you know, there's a lot of you know conversation about that, especially in conservative circles and whatnot. But if if it if it's true, and I do believe it is, that here in Western Pennsylvania, in some way, we are beneficiaries. For better or worse, yeah? Definitely. Uh, you know, whatever's happening, so something's changing. Yep. You know, and I, I never want to get people upset when I'm talking about this, but, you know, the winters are different. The, the springs are sooner. The, the fall is later. 
Uh, and it is definitely a, a change for us gardeners. You know, I have been able to, to grow things, and I've got things out there right now under a little bit of just plastic that have, you know, lettuce plants and arugula and other things, spinach, that have gone all winter long. Really? Where in the past, when, you know, when we, we well, you just couldn't do that. And uh, it, it is a, a great thing for gardeners, I think, to get started sooner. The thing for me this time of the year, and you're looking at the things sprouting up, but I'm listening to the birds. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm listening to those birds in in the morning, and they're just telling me, like, the days are getting longer. Uh, You know, they're they're trying to find a mate, and it's not too far away. It's a very exciting time, actually, for for gardeners because it's right around the corner. You know me, I always start my peas on St. Patrick's Day. Mm And, you know, that's not far away. And, you know, the home show's coming up and spring, spring is, is on the way. Best time of year. It, feel, it really does feel like that. Okay, so uh, if you're getting ready, you're thinking about seeds. Uh, talk about that because you've, you're always growing things from, you know, the seed and the dirt. What a great feeling that must be to see them blossom later on the summer. I always recommend people try to start a little bit of their seeds indoors. It's very easy nowadays. Just need a light source. Get a little LED light from the nursery or from the hardware store, and and anybody can do this. And just start some tomatoes or peppers or flowers a little bit early. And as I said, super easy to do. The reason we do it is is we can grow something unique. Uh, when we first start gardening, we're just I'm glad I didn't kill it. You know, <laughs> right, right. I, it, it survived. Then after that, it's like I don't want to grow what they're growing. I'm going to grow this weird purple tomato or whatever it might be. And so the first thing is, if you do start from seed, it's organizing your seed, figuring out what you have and what you need to order or find at the nursery. I've been around at the nurseries. They all have really nice seed racks up now, so it's an easy way to have to pay shipping, and you mm. can buy your seeds right there. Excellent. Uh, but don't, don't buy something and then double up what you have. Organize your seed. See, see what, you know, I like to organize them by when they go in the ground or when they start inside, so by that timing. So I can look through them and say, oh, my gosh, I don't have any of this. Or, oh, there's no sense in me getting this. I've got plenty of tomatoes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then one other real quick thing is when you've got old seeds, and I've got tomato seeds dating back to maybe late 80s, and they're they're stored in in a dry spot. But before I spend all the time sowing them and putting them into the dirt, uh, I will test them, and I'll just put them in a moist paper towel, Fold that moist paper towel up, put it in a Ziploc bag, put it somewhere warm, and about a week or so, look at there and see what percentage sprouted. And if it's over 50%, you can still use the seeds. If it's below that, just go buy some new seeds. But just knowing what you have and what you need, and then make a little plan, you know, figure out what's going where. So, again, you're not ordering or buying more seeds than you're going to use. You're going to end up like me with... Bags and bags and bags of seeds. I'm giving them away, John. You, anybody come see me anywhere, I'm giving them away. I cannot. These seeds, it's like a, cars are to be driven, guitars are to be played, seeds are to be planted. Excellent. Very good. Very good. Talking with Doug Oster. You can look for him online. He is editor of Gardening with Doug at DougOster.com. Okay, Doug, um, before you came in here, just at the very beginning, you mentioned the home show, but along with the home show, people go, I'm interested, but oftentimes I'm a neophyte. You're offering free classes as always, yeah? 
Every Thursday at 5 o'clock, I do a free online class. You can find the information at DougOster.com. Uh, I do it for Farm to Table, Buy Fresh, Buy Local. I do a lot of work for them. I, it's a great organization, uh, you know, connecting farmers with, uh, with us and, and getting the best fresh produce. And so, yeah, I do these free classes every Thursday at 5 p.m. And tonight is all about trees, shrubs, and perennials, mm. how to plant, plant them, make them thrive. And then, of course, I'm going to be going through a long list of my favorites, John. You know, stuff that's easy to grow. I'm lazy. I don't want to have to do a bunch of stuff. I just want to <laughs> put it in the ground and, and let it go. And then when people come and see the garden, they think it's all me. But it's, no, it's the plant that I picked that does its thing no matter what. <laughs> Outstanding. Fabulous. Every Thursday, 5 o'clock, a free class with Doug Oster. All right. So we've had this conversation in the past, and nothing's going to change. I, I have a plot of land, but I am literally overrun by deer. This morning I walked out, like you said, took the dog out in the yard. I heard the beauty of the birds in the early light, like around 6.30 this morning. Fabulous. But there were six deer steer, uh, staring back at me as though, <laughs> what are you doing here, friend? Um, the deer are there. And so short of me, you know, building building a, a gigantic fence, uh, there's nothing going to happen in my yard because the deer just basically eat everything. Well, this, and this is the worst time of the season for deer pressure because nothing has uh, leafed out in the forest, and so only the stuff that's in your backyard is going to be there for them to eat. Uh, the number one thing is to use a repellent, you know, a spray or, or granular repellent or both, you know, uh, and I know I battle the deer too, John. I mean, they're they're terrible, and and you know, I've got, in the worst case scenario, I've got three young deer, and the young deer are the worst. They don't know what to eat, so they taste everything until they figure it out. But if I can keep the the plants sprayed, they will not eat them. And so I've been, you know, I, the spray I'm using is one called Bobex, but there are a lot of different ones. They all work. Mine sticks on there. I've, about two or three rains, and I have to reapply. So I have a little bit of leeway, which you need, because because you get kind of lulled into a false sense of security. You, yeah. you spray a couple times, then you forget, and they don't eat anything. And then that one night that you don't spray, and you yeah, come out, your rhododendron's gone. But I, I you know, first is a physical bar- barrier, then some some kind of repellent, and then figuring out things they don't like to eat. There are a long list of things that I'll be talking about in one of those classes about. Things that I plant out there where the deer just walk right by them, believe oh. it or not. Oh, good. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to tune in for that if I can. Doug Oster's <laughs> with us. Now, listen, uh, you, you did mention the aforementioned home show, a, an, another harbinger of spring. You make an annual appearance there as well, don't you? Yeah, I'll be there every day until the last weekend. I'm uh, headed for Portugal uh, nice. for the last weekend of the home show. Yes, can't wait. Uh, but I'll be there every day, speaking several times a day, giving away free seeds. Uh, it's it's going to be amazing. You know, I love the home show, and we're just a few weeks away. And like I said, I've got some really uh, two two tomatoes to give away. One is called Julia Child, hmm. <laughs> and the other one's called Clint Eastwood Rowdy Red. <laughs> <laughs> They're both great varieties, and I, I love to give that stuff away to people. You know, it gives them an opportunity to try and start them, and like I said, just put some put them under a bright light, and you can do it. Anybody can do it. And you're going to have a story to tell when you are serving Julia Child uh, tomatoes or Clint Eastwood Rowdy Red. Do you know where the Rowdy name comes from? You're probably too young. Is it Rawhide? 
That's exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. I guess you are old, Josh. Yes, I am. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> I mean, it, sh- it should be, you know, what? Uh, how many How many do you think I've left? Or what, what was the phrase that he was with a Dirty Harry, right? Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, listen, <laughs> I, before you go, uh, I, I, you brought up Portugal. I mean, do you need a valet? Because I know you've been globetrotting a lot lately. <laughs> you go around the world and you invite listeners to come along. Talk to them about that. I just announced my... Trip of a lifetime for me is Iceland. Mm. Since I was a kid, I don't know what it is. I guess it might have been in school. I saw something about Iceland, and I've just always been wanting to go there. And now it's like a tourist destination, but it's not overrun. And so it's relatively inexpensive as far as the trips that I uh, do. And like I said, I just announced that we're going in November. We'll be to see the Northern Lights. We'll be back in time for Thanksgiving. And I love traveling with people. I I love spending time with them, and we're always always looking for uh, gardens or uh, landscapes to explore. Uh, Iceland in November. I don't know what we're going to see as far as that. You never know. <laughs> but, but we're going to see those northern lights. And the funny thing is, when I was a teenager, one of my friend's mom, I told her, I said, I've, I've got to go to Iceland. She goes, Iceland? Iceland's just a big, cold rock. And, you know, and it just... I just was like taken aback. I'm like, oh no! And then years later, when I see Iceland is becoming a place to go, uh, I just I can't I can't wait. This is really really exciting for me. Good for you, fabulous! Out and going to see uh, the world and all that's in it, Doug. A great pleasure. Thanks so much. Good to talk to you, John. Yep. For all that, the classes, the insights, the trips, look online, DougOster.com. He's editor of Gardening with Doug, Doug Oster. Well, even as we go to air, uh, we are still dealing with, apparently, across the country, um, a a cellular outage on a huge scale. Have you heard about this? AT&T... Uh, along with uh, subsidiaries, Cricket Wireless, Verizon, T-Mobile, other service providers, uh, according to uh, data from Down Detector, uh, they are out. It started um, overnight, like 3.30 this morning, and I think continues on deeply into the United States. Now, of course, as these things happen, <laughs> the world that we live in today, um, <clears throat> there is there are conspiracy theories about that. that you know, the, uh, it's the Russians, it's the CIA, it's all that. But AT and T, fueling things, I suppose, cryptic and their response about what's causing the the, um, the explosion of the lack of cell phones across the country, the uh, the downing of them. They have been slow to respond uh, through their their press people, just saying they are looking into it. And so far, no reason has been given for the outages. Um, uh, This is from uh, Lee McKnight. He's a professor at the iSchool at Syracuse University. He says he most likely believe the cause of outage is a cloud misconfiguration or human error. He said a possible but less likely outcome is an international malicious hack of AT&T's network. But uh, the diffuse patterns of outages across the country suggest something more fundamental, uh, said the professor in a statement. I mean, right, things are going to happen. Okay, so if you were to not have your phone for a day, would it cause you some panic or some fear? Or in some ways... Is it, you know, just like, well, it'll come back. Lex, what do you think? Um, uh, 
Is your carrier AT&T? No, I I use Xfinity. Xfinity. Yeah. And so no outage. No I have outage. No, I have no outage. Neither. Right? Yeah. It doesn't feel as though there's a, you know, a big outage here across western Pennsylvania. Mm-mm. But as I said, across other parts of other regions, like a total blackout. Yeah. It's insane that... A lot of people are without their phones currently. I mean, it still works with Wi-Fi yeah. um, if you are experiencing the outage. But, I mean, not everyone has connection to Wi-Fi all the time. So I think I would have a harder time doing it, mainly because my job <laughs> is so connected to this little square. Always. But mm-hmm. uh, I feel like those who are unfortunately in this kind of like blackout almost – can also kind of see it as like a blessing to themselves to kind of disconnect. Um, maybe. A, yes. Unless maybe. it's like one of these conspiracy minded things. Oh, it's the CIA or whatever. Of course, you know, nothing happens today without some sort of conspiracy surrounding it. Yeah. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. is I, I, I just would see it as a blessing if I didn't have to be on my phone and I had an excuse for it. You know, like if I had a, a chance to not um, have access to my phone, I would be like, that's great. I can just. It put this in my pocket and ignore it for a while, okay. and I'd be okay. Do you, at the ever end of the day, look at your usage throughout the day? You look at those numbers? Every day I get a notification. Me too. And it makes me so sad. Me too. Or like on Sundays, um, it'll be like, oh, your screen time was down by 15%. You were on your phone for like six hours. And I'm like, that's still a lot of time. It's a lot of time. <laughs> it's a lot of time. Sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll be home and I'll walk into the living room. And I'll see, like, you know, my wife or one of my kids on their phone, you know, heads down. And you think, that's the normal response. That's that's a lot of people for many, many hours all day long. Mm Mm-hmm. But it still kind of rankles me, and I'm as guilty as anybody. Yeah, I'm so guilty of it. I always feel bad because I feel like I should be off of it, but also right. it's, it's something, unfortunately, I'm engrossed in. <laughs> I was sitting there last night on the couch, and something came across that uh, said, oh, there's a new sports app that uh, Apple's produced. You might want to download that. So I yelled across the room to my kid, hey, you get that? He was like, I already have it. So, I mean... <laughs> that was so quick. <laughs> so oh, he's like, you know, way ahead of the curve, apparently. But But when... When there is a new app or a new game or something, I mean, it's so sick. You, you do kind of want it, don't you? Yeah, sometimes those ads really suck me in. Mm-hmm. And I wish that they didn't work on me as well as they do sometimes. Such is life in the modern world. Okay, uh, we're going to come back. We're going to talk about uh, next uh, here on The Ride Home, holiness, uh, worship. Tom Sroka joins us next for Pittsburgh's Christian Talk. Stick around. The church of my youth was filled with a deep and strong reverence. Just how it was. Now, I know that was a long time ago. And, and, and modern American worship, in some ways, is, is certainly different from how a lot of us grew up, for better or worse, I would say. But what about reverence in worship? Is that part of your regular church-going experience? Father Tom Soroka is with us, St. Nicholas Orthodox Church in McKees Rocks. And Tom, welcome back. Uh, you are a harbinger uh, of many traditions, <laughs> which I believe is to look at the church in a holy perspective. Yeah? Yeah, I, you know, I think that it's an important topic, and, and you hit the nail on the head when you talked about our modern experience, because I think, you know, let's set, re- let's set worship aside for a second reverence and formality has kind of gone out 
the door, right? Um, we know, for instance, maybe 75 years ago, people would wear a suit and tie in the home and, you know, everybody would sit down and make sure that they were clean for dinner and uh, people would get dressed up to go to church on Sunday. Yeah. And I think that there is a misunderstanding that simply says that reverence is something that is a heart attitude and it does not necessarily need to have an outward expression. And to be honest, John, I think the problem with that is not simply that it is not traditional or that it is not the way that we used to do things, but I think this is bad theology. Um, there, there is this sort of misunderstanding that if we are spiritual people, right, that what really matters is my heart, my spirit, my emotions. And so reverence is something that I experience within me, and it doesn't matter how I dispose myself. But again, this is, this is bad theology because we are human beings. We are human beings that are both body and soul. So yes, reverence is something that, is, that has to be inward, but it also has to be outward. Let me give you an example. Okay. Let's, look, let's look at Moses. Moses uh, has this meeting face-to-face with God, right? Or at least back-to-face. And he, it says he goes up into the mountain, right? Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. And, you know, it's very interesting. We, we have to just think about that for a second. In the biblical theology of both Judaism and Christianity, something that is raised is something that is kind of elevated and is, is of greater value. So, for instance, paradise is above. It is at a higher place. Um, you know, you have, for instance, the Jerusalem. It is in a higher place. So Moses goes up to the mountain Horeb, to meet God, and there it says that he sees this burning bush, right? And, and Moses says he wants to look why this bush is, is burning, but it, it's not consumed. And so it says, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. And, you know, like, in other words, he did not say, Moses, have a pure heart and, you know, love me with your heart. He said, take your shoes off. This is holy ground. And then we know the, the idea, the, the word in uh, Greek for worship is proskinisomen, proskinesis, which means to bow down. So we have to physically um, understand that there is a way of reverent worship that it has to involve our physical understanding. So, um, you know, there's a couple of things that happened recently that kind of got under my skin, and I don't want to you know, upset anyone, but one, I'm sure many people heard about it, was this funeral at St. Patrick's Cathedral of a transgender activist. Uh, Now, this person was transgender, so he was actually born a man. 
that we'll just set aside for a second. But what happened was during this funeral, the transgender activists actually um, yelled out um, uh, sort of terrible things, uh, calling this woman a, I'm not going to say the word they use, but a prostitute. And they all applauded. Mm-hmm. And um, this is in New York City. Her to, yeah, they likened her to a saint, mm-hmm. uh, even though she was a prostitute, right? He, excuse me. And um, then uh, there was another incident. In it, there's in the Christian Post. It says Ohio megachurch pastor kicks Bible off stage during Super Bowl Sunday service, and the pastor said, "We believe that church can and should be fun." This is wait, the, I believe. Wait, are you saying they used a, a Bible as a football? Here's what it says. It says. An evangelical megachurch in Ohio kicked off Super Bowl weekend literally with a sermon that had all social media buzzing. Pastors with Crossroads Church in Cincinnati, a multi-site interdenominational church, boasts a weekly congregation of 34,000, punted, literally kicked it, it's on video, a copy of the Bible as part of its Super Bowl of Preaching series. That's heretical. So, like, what, what does this mean? And I think, John, part of it is... In our society, we have been entertained to death. We have um, every streaming service under the sun. We have, you know, 100,000 movies that we can watch at any time. We're still bored, right? We're still bored. And we think, and we treat our children this way now, that they have to be entertained in order to be interested. And now those children have grown up to be adults. And those adults now have to be entertained during worship, worshiping the holy God that is lifted on high, that has, as it says in Ephesians, raised us up to the heavenly places. But instead, uh, we're going to make a parade of our transgenderism, or we're going to kick a Bible off a stage. This is absolutely scurrilous, and we should not lower our humanity, our God-given humanity, to such depths to think that somehow worship is about me. Worship is not about me. Reverence is, is an integral part of worship because God is holy. So, for instance, uh, you know, when, when uh, Moses receives all the instructions about how the priests are to uh, dress and how the tabernacle is to be set up— it says um, that after all the dress, it says that Aaron puts a, a plate, a, a, a brass, I think, or a golden plate on his head, and it says on it, holiness to the Lord, holiness to the Lord. So what is holy about kicking a Bible okay. across the stage? So, Tom, what is this? I mean, I mean, this is something, you know, that your mother said, show some respect. Right. Show some respect here. Be in a worshipful, a worshipful experience and show some respect. We've come a long way. And again, I I, I don't want you to, you know, to act as the scold, but this is a necessary conversation to think about what is reverence? What is worship? We need this in our lives. I mean, there is something if we say we know our Lord and Savior, then we should act in kind and we need to be down and the Lord of the universe has to be lifted. 
Right, exactly. And and part of it, John, I believe, is the idea that, um, and, and again, I think it's a kind of theological error, and it may even be an, an existential error. And that, that error is that we as humans think that our spiritual life is purely spiritual. Think about this from from a um, really from a, a like a, a philosophical theological standpoint. You cannot live without your body. That's why there is a resurrection. If if there was no resurrection, uh, we would not live eternally. The resurrection is what makes us live eternally. We cannot live without our body. We know our body and our soul together, and that together is the way in which the Holy Spirit has, has inspired us and created us so that we can even experience the foretaste by the Holy Spirit. Again, this is what St. Paul says. We can foretaste the inheritance that we have in the kingdom of God. We do this in our body. And if we believe that worship, and here's, here's the other thing, John, if we have reduced worship to a Bible study and a few songs, this is a terrible, terrible error. We, we have to stand before the presence of God with our mind in our heart in humility, recognizing how great He is and how small we are, and that we are standing in the presence of a holy God, in fact, lifted up to the heavenly places. This is what the, the letter to the Hebrews says. The letter to the Hebrews says that Christ, who is seated at the right hand of, Father, of the Father, we are there with him. You know, we, and, and it says in Ephesians, we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones, it says. And so we have to remember the kind of incarnational aspect of worship and this nonsense of kicking Bibles across the stage. We say, well, you know, we're just trying to get people's interest. God is going to bring people that want to worship him in spirit and in truth. If they want to be entertained, we have the NFL, we have the NHL, we have the NBA. Whatever. We don't need that on in our churches. Right. And so perhaps to begin, to end where you began, when you think about us in the state of entertainment in this country, where, you know, everything's at our fingertips, and we're used to seeing the depiction of the miraculous on the small and big screen. So when you would consider the Lord of the universe, the miracle of that, and him knowing us personally, intimately, then we think, well, of course, because I've seen it, I know it, I've experienced it on my, you know, HBO, Netflix, whatever. So what's the big deal? So then everything becomes less than and watered down. Yeah, yeah. Every, everything has become sort of um, graspable, right? And, and there is a mystery here. I will, I will grant that. The mystery is that the unknowable God, right, who from all eternity, like with Moses, he says to Moses, he says, don't look at me. You can't look at me and live. I'll, you, can, you know, once I go away, you can look at my backside, right? But then in Christ, God has made himself known in Jesus. And how did he do that? He did not do that through a, a kind of mere spiritual means. He did that through the incarnation. He did that by taking on human flesh. So 
so the God of the universe, the eternal word of God, actually took on a body and became man forever for us. And now he is resurrected in the heavenly places. We have to worship as though we are there because we are with him. And if we, if we denigrate our worship in the way that we dispose ourselves, in the way that we dress ourselves, in the way that we comport ourselves, what we are really doing is we are denigrating, and I, I'm not condemning anybody, but we are denigrating the holiness of God himself. Worship is, has to be about God, not about me, not about getting my attention. And the way that we do that is to remember that our worship is standing before the Lord of the universe and his Son and his Spirit. Amen and amen and amen. Humble yourself before the Lord. Tom, excellent. Thank you. I love this so much. I appreciate your presence here and putting that out because uh, we become all too familiar and it waters down the beauty and the majesty of the Lord in our presence. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. God bless you. God bless you. Father Tom Soroka, St. Nicholas Orthodox Church, McKees Rocks. Hey, a, a couple of things that you should be aware of that are happening here uh, in and around the station. Uh, we've started a new, uh, a new program called uh, Church of the Week, and I think we're in week two of this. So uh, what we've done is we've invited local pastors to come and join us, uh, 25 minutes uh, of a conversation, totally free, and um, we delve down into uh, the pastor and the congregation and aspects of scripture and uh all these different things that make up the local church. So if you check out wordfm.com, and uh, perhaps you'd put the information, your pastor might be interested in joining us on the air. Uh, it's gratis, no big deal. Just come and join us and uh, sit down and have a conversation and tell us about your church all over western Pennsylvania, down into Ohio, and uh, over into Ohio and to West Virginia as well. It's uh, wordfm.com. Very nice, the Church of the Week. Also, um, Kath's been talking about this. Uh, Lisa Turkhurst is coming to Pittsburgh. Um, this is March 15th, I believe. Yeah, March 15th, Amplify Church in uh, Plum Borough. This is a, a, a ladies' event. Uh, it's a night of uh, biblical wisdom and teaching plus worship. And um, it looks to be pretty cool. Wordfm.com for that as well. And then, uh, was it, what's today? Today's Thursday. I think Tuesday of this week, Jeremy Camp joined us on there. I love Jeremy Camp. I mean, Jerry, Jeremy, that's a heck of a thing he's done all these many, many years. And to, to sing and to worship as he does, that's a powerful ministry. So Jeremy Camp headed into uh, the Carnegie Music Hall of Homestead, which I love. I think it's my favorite concert venue in the city. It's, it's small and it's old and uh, it's historic, great acoustics. I love the balcony. The balcony, especially on the sides, my favorite spot to sit and to, and to watch artists. So Jeremy Camp coming into town uh, April 4th. Um, also, too, uh, Natalie Grant's in town even earlier. Uh, Natalie Grant and uh, Bernie Herms, her husband, uh, they're in town March 22nd. And then Amy Grant's in town uh, May 14th, all at the same place. Carnegie Music Hall of Home of Homestead. So uh, check it out, okay? Whether it's Elisa Turkhurst or Amy Grant or Jeremy Camp and uh, all those things. Pastor of the Week, uh, I think you know where to go. Wordfm.com. Okay, that's our 4 o'clock hour. Kath, Kath's out and about. Happy anniversary to Kath and Eric. And uh, she's taking the, uh, the day off or so to celebrate. So um, we're here together on the ride home. 
stay with us for the five o'clock hour. Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome in. Thanks for coming along today for the Thursday edition of The Ride Home, the uh, 5 o'clock hour. Kath um, is off today. She's uh, out celebrating uh, her anniversary and uh, fabulous. Many decades, her and her excellent husband, Eric. That's a very, very good thing. So uh, she deserves a little time off. Uh, we're going to talk uh, in a little bit uh, about uh, <laughs> preferred pronouns. Always a hot topic. <laughs> we'll talk about that a little later on in the show. And uh, we're also going to talk about the history of Down syndrome and ancient civilizations and, of course, how people have looked at people with Down syndrome. That's a, a head here on the 5 o'clock hour. Um, I have a, a long association with AA with Alcoholics Anonymous. It has uh, saved my life, and I believe uh, around the globe, many, 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 many millions of people from a life of addiction and despair. I'll make no bones about that. Um, if you've been around AA um, or um, offshoots of, uh, of that, Celebrate Recovery and whatnot, you, you know that AA has its roots in the Oxford group, which uh, is a, was, a, was a Christian group of um, strong men and women of faith that dates back to the 1920s and 1930s. All that to say that um, Sunday of this past week, Sunday this past week, it was like um, right after church, so you know around noonish or so, I got a text from an old friend of mine who I have known for many, many years in the program. And he said, hey, um, John, I've been asked to speak at a group online. And um, even though we haven't stayed in touch for the last couple of years, uh, my friend, he lives in, um, lives in South Carolina. He said, do me a favor and uh, uh, tune in, and I'd like to have your support. So, yeah. So that was at 5 o'clock on Sunday. And uh, my friend, uh, what a story he has. Um, and briefly, this is his story because I, I love it so much. And um, it goes like this. Uh, he, he grew up in a, uh, 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 like a lot of us, in a house that was filled with faith. But then he fell away. And uh, this was like, you know, um, the 1960s. This goes back a long way. And of the time, you know, he, like a lot of young guys, uh, emulating his um, heroes, the Beatles, picked up a guitar and taught himself and then became proficient enough that he started to take lessons and became quite good, excellent guitarist. So much so that he left his childhood home and moved to New York City where he found fame and fortune with a group that if I said the name, you would recognize immediately and perhaps be able to sing along with more than several of their songs. Now, this guy, my friend... (laughs) He was such a drunk and such an addict that the members of his group said, you're a bum and we can't rely upon you and we are going to kick you out of the group. Now, you got to go pretty low to get kicked out of a rock and roll group um, as a drunk and an alcoholic. 
So he bummed around for a while. Royalty checks would come in, and he would tell the story. Royalty checks would come in, and me and my girlfriend, we would uh, take off and take a flight to Italy, and uh, we would, you know, carouse and do drugs until all the money ran out, and then we'd limp back home. And this continued on for many, many years until um, uh, there was a guy in his neighborhood, (laughs) a guy's name Dagger, who drove a motorcycle in the – in the lower uh, Manhattan, and uh, they were neighbors. And this guy said, hey, Jack, um, you're a bum, just like me. And um, why don't you come to a meeting? And so Jack was like, you know, he was sick and tired of being sick and tired. And so he said, yeah, okay. So he started to go to this meeting. And in this meeting, a 60-year-old woman stood up and said, I want you to know, at 60, I just received my MD. I am now a medical doctor, and I couldn't have done it without your help. And, and Jack says, without, without even hesitating, here he is in his 40s, mid-40s, he said, that's for me. And so, in his mid-40s, Jack went to med school. After spending a huge career in rock and roll, he went to med school. And when you know it, he graduated and did his residency. But then... In the 1990s, when the helmet laws were repealed, Jack wanted to do brain trauma. So why not come to Pennsylvania, which had just repealed its helmet laws, and there were all a lot of guys who were now, for the first time, driving without their helmets. And, of course, carnage. That's when I met Jack. (laughs) And he changed my life for the better forever. A strong guy who reinvented himself. Now, the thing is, Jack would listen to the station. And of course, I was here. And he would say, John, you know, Jesus, it doesn't really, I'm not sure. But I appreciate what you're doing there. And I appreciate the station because I hear these people talk and there's wisdom there. So I'll tune in. (laughs) Now, wouldn't you know it, Jack moved away. He was part of the federal government and it does a lot of brain research with trauma with people who are war veterans and whatnot, guys coming off the battlefield. Does excellent work. But in his lead the other night, after I had not talked to him for a couple years, he brought up Jesus. And so he's come full circle. And that's the power. You know, that's the power of AA. That's the power of saying Jesus' name out loud. That's the power of surrendering and getting rid of the junk in your life and coming clean. Now, I'm not saying AA is a church. Don't, don't hear that. But I'm saying it's a gateway because the seeds of it are. And there's the power within that. And a lot of people who could never enter into a church because of whatever you know their experiences were and the trauma and all those whole kind of things that we're all well aware of. When you first get sober, they say, Name a higher power. Name name a higher power. And I, I knew a guy who worked as a contractor, and he was such a bum. He was like, well, my higher power is my work boots because that gets me out the door. And when I put my boots on, I know I got to show up and be on time and do a good day's work. Okay, it worked, right, for a while. And then, of course, you have to surrender to the higher power of the universe, to our Lord and Savior. Anyway, on this day, I think about that guy, and I think about Jack. 
and the ability for him to recreate himself in a new life after he was a young kid and then became a rock and roll star and then became a drunk and then went into a meeting and heard someone say, I'm going to reinvent myself at middle age and become a doctor. And Jack said, that's for me. And now he's like me. He's an older guy. And man, changed his life and everybody else around him because he's a powerful guy because he found sobriety. That's the story of Jack. I have two sons, one early 20s, one mid 20s. And so they are ripe in this generation of the social volcano that has happened this past five or 10 years, right? The other day, one of them came in and I said, Hey, man, how you doing? We've been, and my young kid said, I was with they. I was with they. I was like, oh, he's hanging out with a group of friends. He's with they. I said, who are you with? He goes, well, you know they. Oh, oh. And I've known this guy, all my, this young guy all my life. And um, I was surprised that, you know, that there was they. There was a thing there. But that's where we are. And, and I know to say this out loud, you know, for certain, some people, they'll look at this and go, John, you're being a hater. Um, you're a transphobe, or you're uh, what all? And I don't want to be that. Of course, I don't want to be that. I want to be kind and loving to and look in the eyes of everyone that I meet. But there is this revolution on, uh, that, uh, that is afoot, and if you're a certain age or a certain mindset, then you're outside of this. So I think about this often. We're happy to welcome to the show Richard Osborne. Richard is a constitutional law fellow with a Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. And I saw a piece at the Gospel Coalition. The headline is Early Court Rulings on Preferred Pronouns in the Workplace. And Rich, thanks for being along with this. Um, is the disclaimer in place that as you speak today, you're not speaking for Beckett, but you're using your own opinions here? Yes, that's correct. And thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, it's our pleasure. My pleasure. So uh, you heard my introduction here and um, how it's affected, of course, my family and, of course, I'm sure millions of families across the country. And not only families, but especially workplaces where people of good faith show up and like they've been doing for many years, uh, sometimes for decade after decade, all of a sudden, especially for teachers or people, you know, where they are engaging the population. They are being called out because of their religious liberties and their religious rights as haters and transphobes. There are several cases that you wrote about in the Gospel Coalition. Could you please go into this and talk to us about that? Yeah, of course. And I I think you're definitely right that this is becoming a much more important issue. There are more people identifying as transgender. And along with that, as you point out, there are a lot more demands in the workplace specifically uh, for people to use other individuals' preferred pronouns. And so there are two cases that I you know, looked at in the piece that I wrote, and both of them come up in the school context. That seems to be at the moment, at least where uh, this is at a flashpoint, where teachers are required to speak to their students with either their preferred first names, their preferred pronouns, uh, you know, depending on the specific school. And so in, in one of the cases, you know, we're dealing with a college professor. He was at this, this small public school in Ohio for 25 years with a spotless disciplinary record. So, I mean, if it can happen to him, you know, it can happen to anybody. And the school here adopts this policy saying, you know, you have to use preferred pronouns and we're not going to make exceptions for, uh, 
religious believers. You know, it doesn't matter why you object to this. We're just not going to have any exceptions to it. And so, you know, there's a lot of back and forth, but he just felt like he couldn't comply. And so he brought a, uh, a suit in court. And so, uh, fortunately, the court agreed with him, you know, and said, you know, under the free exercise clause, the university's got to give neutral and respectful consideration to your beliefs. And in this case, it just didn't happen. Uh, you know, it was kind of scary in some of the logic the school used. They equated his religious beliefs to racism, um, and they departed from all their normal procedures, you know, sort of having a sham investigation and eventually formally disciplined him and threatened him saying, you know, hey, if you, if you don't stop now, next step's going to be firing you. Hmm. And so it's just, it's, it's definitely becoming a huge issue. And as you can see, it can really happen to any religious believer, no matter where they are. Right. Okay. So, th- I mean, that's, that's the horrible thing, because as you said, somebody teaching in academia, whether, you know, at the, at the lower level or higher levels in universities, a spotless record, I'm sure much beloved in the community, all those things that we all know are, you know, our favorite teachers. And then all of a sudden there's a sea change and the sea change has come so quickly. And if we can't respond appropriately to the way the culture is wanting us to respond, then you lose your livelihood because you can't respond to a kid who's saying, my name is now this, as opposed to this, however, and it doesn't make any sense. And so then you're in the unemployment line. Exactly. Yeah, it's. These schools and specifically these school administrators, you know, they have these agendas. And unfortunately, it used to be commonplace in America that we'd have, you know, religious diversity. People would have different viewpoints and we'd all sort of respect that. But these days, people are very interested in compelling orthodox viewpoints and they're all too happy to try to eliminate anybody who holds the opposite view. Okay, so then the case that you just told us about. That case wound its way through the courts. Was there ultimately a resolution here that favored the teacher? Yes. In the in the case that involved Professor Merriweather at the small public school, yes, he did prevail uh, at the Sixth Circuit, the U.S. Court of Appeals there, and they did agree that the school had violated his rights. And so I wonder, okay, so then he's under legal protection now. I wonder what it's like for him in the classroom, because clearly he has to be an outlier in the school and probably his reputation is crushed by fellow students. People would have, you know, students would avoid that class. Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. I think, you know, just because you go and vindicate these rights in in court doesn't mean that at the end of the day, people are going to want to be around you at these environments and they're still going to be hostile towards you. And they'll probably come right up to the line of Mm -hmm. infringing your rights. And so that's why it's 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 still important. Uh, that people stand up for these rights. And I think it's encouraging that courts are vindicating them. Um, But there are definitely bigger issues, as you point to, in the culture itself that requires uh, addressing those as well, I think, for these people to have, you know, wholesome relief. We're talking with Rich Osborne. He's a constitutional law fellow with the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. So, Rich, take take us to the other case and and show us the, the story of that. Yeah, the other case, unfortunately, has sort of a, a different path. Um, it's, it's similar in the sense that we're dealing this time with a high school teacher. Uh, he's also Christian. The school adopts, again, another policy that says you have to use preferred uh, first names and pronouns. And again, you know, he objects to this. Uh, the school at first is willing to kind of work with him. They say, you know, you can use last names. We'll be okay with that. And as again, we often see these these administrators don't really have the backbone to stand by that decision. And so there are complaints that uh, you know, accumulate throughout the year, and then ultimately they give him a choice. Follow the pronoun policy or we're going to have to fire you. 
And so again, he had to sue just like Professor Merriweather. And um, unfortunately, in this case, the Seventh Circuit said, at first you lose, you know, that, that under the Civil Rights Act, you are only entitled to a reasonable accommodation if it doesn't put an undue burden on the employer. And at the time that was construed pretty narrowly, that was going to be anything more than a minimal uh, inconvenience to the school. And so obviously the school, you know, starts saying that this is going to be something that, you know, dehumanizes our students and it doesn't, doesn't align with our policies. And so ultimately they prevailed at first, but there was good news in that story that the Supreme court in a separate case, which is called Groff versus DeJoy had redefined what it means to impose an undue burden under the civil rights act. And so it's now a lot more rigorous. The new definition is something that's going to uh, result in substantial increased costs. So we're looking at something that's going to be, you know, significant increase in um, finances, or it's going to, you know, really alter the nature of the organization, which is a tough burden to show. And so fortunately after the Supreme court, you know, issued that ruling, the Seventh Circuit said, you know, we have to reconsider this. We're going to vacate our previous decision. And so currently they're reconsidering under the new definition uh, whether he's entitled to an accommodation. All right. So in flux as we speak. All right. So religious freedom is a thing, whether it's in the workplace or at the school. Uh, weirdly, oddly, this thing hinges on the Jehovah's Witness, which goes way back to the 1940s. So the tide is turning in some ways because of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Tell us that story. Yeah, there's a case back in the 1940s. It's a pretty famous one um, among constitutional lawyers. And uh, basically, you know, you had a school in West Virginia that was trying to compel people to uh, engage in the Pledge of Allegiance, you know, something that's pretty commonplace in America. But Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, you know, have religious beliefs that say, you know, we can't pledge allegiance, you know, to to a flag. And that's not something we can do. And, you know, in a famous opinion, the Supreme Court, you know, issued some a statement that, you know, it's pretty broad and pretty protective. And they say that if there's any fixed star in our constitutional constellation is that no official higher petty can prescribe what shall be orthodox in politics, nationalism, religion, or other matters of opinion or force citizens to confess by word or act their faith therein. And that takes a pretty categorical stance that the hmm. state cannot require people to use preferred pronouns in this specific context or really any other idea that the state thinks is the right viewpoint. Excellent. Okay, so then... The good news is that despite the craziness, and again, I don't want to denigrate people's lives, but there has been this whiplash of a a turn here in society, and and people of good faith are uh, under attack. There's no doubt about that. And the courts, I think, and as you wrote in the Gospel Coalition piece, that the courts are at least starting to recognize this, and we may prevail in some ways, that sanity will, conti- will, will prevail, and that we will continue in our lives without the unnecessary burden of engaging in these culture wars, yes? Yes, that's true. There are definitely these two cases, and there are other cases, you know, in different contexts where courts have stood up protecting these uh, religious beliefs and other transgender contexts, and so... I think at the end of the day, even as scary as it may seem that this can happen all over the place, I think Christians should be encouraged that, you know, looking forward, the signs are positive that your religious beliefs will be taken seriously in the courts. Amen to that. Well, Rich, as I said when you came in, even though you're not speaking for the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, could you take a second and talk to us about the Beckett Fund? Yeah, Beckett's a great organization. We're we're in this fight every day in all sorts of issues, standing up for religious um, beliefs all different faiths. It's not just Christians, because, you know, what happens to one 
religious believer can happen to any other religious believer. And so um, it's, it's an honor to work for Beckett. They do great work in this space. They're always standing up for anybody and everybody um, and making sure that America has robust religious liberty protections. That's good. Rich, thanks so much. We appreciate your advocacy for people of all faith. Thanks again. Thank you very much. Our pleasure. Richard Osborne, Constitutional Law Fellow at the Beckett Fund for Religious Freedom. We're talking about preferred pronouns in the workplace and at school. Uh, It continues on. If you're fortunate in your circle of friends, people will, from time to time or fairly regularly, say to you, Hey, um, would you pray for me because I'm going through this, right? Please do this. Or, you know, of course, if you attend church regularly and your church bulletin and whatnot, there are prayer requests there. And of course, here at the station, we regularly receive prayer requests at wordfm.com, of which you are also welcome. You can find the prayer request portal there. And isn't it... I remember the first time, well, one of the first few times people would say that, you know, you're a person of faith and and you hear that. Would you please, what an incredible honor that is, isn't it? And I know we sort of, like all things that happen repeatedly, it kind of waters it down in some way, although it's necessary to resist that. But what a great, incredible honor it is to pray for people. I got a text the other day from a friend of mine, and he said, um, hey, uh, can you pray for me? I'm dealing with multiple health issues and mobility. They're not life-threatening, but they are are mentally and physically overwhelming. And I'm scared, and I'm tired, and I'm struggling to maintain my faith. And that's my friend. And I'll just say his initial. He's K. And just... When I see that, when I think about my friend, okay, what a great guy, what a strong person of faith he is, even as his self-admitted that he's struggling to maintain his faith. And I, I know who he is, and I know his ministry, and I know his heart, and his sincerity, and his authenticity, and all those things. And to reach out like that, asking for prayer, in our weakest moments, right? We are asking for the greatest gift, which is our communion with our Lord and Savior, to give us strength and wisdom and grace in all of our failures, all of our physical maladies and all the things that corrupt us, all the things, our mind and our heart and our spirit that become so weak, because that's the ebb and flow of life, right? We come into this world often, most of us, strong and vibrant as little babies, And then, of course, you know, we go through our lives and life takes its toll. It is difficult, right? Life is so hard. And all those people, you think about all those little babies, all those kids at Children's Hospital and all the things that the procedures that they go through. I mean, the horror of what it is to think about childhood leukemia and childhood cancer and kids with unimaginable maladies. And God bless them to think about them, you know regularly to pray for them regularly and their parents those loved ones who are trying to take care of them in in the in the midst of that super difficult things that sometimes go on not only for months but for year after year after year after year and perhaps never heal all those children all those little babies 
and for the rest of us, just the regular people who are blessed to be healthy in seasons of life. And but then things rise up and crush us and take us over. And oh, you know what it's like to feel real pain, right? Real physical pain. And then the psychological pain that comes along with that. And then the despair that comes along with that as well. That's why prayer is so valuable, so powerful, so deeply beautiful. So like my friend Kay, or who is ever on your prayer list, and I, I do hope that you have an active prayer list that, that's out there. And people say, you pray for me? And, and of course, all of us have done this. We nod our head, and then, of course, it goes in one ear and out the other. But to actively write that person's name down and make a list that you go to regularly, daily, if not hourly, again and again and again, to pray for my friend Kay. Put that on your list, won't you please? To pray for him in his frailty that he's dealing with multiple health issues, mobility, not life-threatening, but mentally and physically that are overwhelming. And people like Kay, who is scared and tired and struggling to maintain their faith, be with them. We ask you, Lord, and all this, who's ever on your list, Lord God Almighty, the shaper and ruler of all creatures, we pray for you, for us, Lord. We ask for your great mercy to guide us to your will to make our minds steadfast, to strengthen us against temptation, to put far from us all unrighteousness. Shield us, Lord, against our foes, seen and unseen. Teach us so that we may upwardly love you before all things with a clean mind and a clean body. For you are our maker and our redeemer, our trust and our hope in all these things. Amen. I saw something the other day that came across the newswire about a, a team of archaeologists who had discovered a burial site, prehistoric burial site. And within that team, there were people, researchers, who were interested in Down syndrome. And so they were able to pull DNA from these bones. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of years old and saw that there were in these settlements of people, members of these, of these groups, that had Down syndrome, little babies. The, the article talks about finding these burial sites and seeing the children dying as young as one age, as, as one year old in their age. And at, at the burial sites, these little babies were, were honored and buried carefully, which... The clinicians and the researchers have said it goes to show that even ancient people who have a connection to those with Down syndrome looked at them and honored them as who they were, which shockingly goes against who we are as modern people. Because if you know anything about Down, Down syndrome children today, babies, preborn babies, they're often subject to abortion. Someone gets genetic tests and they go, well, we don't want a Down syndrome, baby. We'll abort that child and try again. We're happy to welcome back to the airwaves, Amy Julia Becker. She helps people reimagine the good life through her writing and speaking on disability, faith, and culture. She is the author of To Be Made Well, 
White Picket Fences, Small Talk, and a Good and Perfect Gift. She's a guest opinion writer for National Publications, hosts the remaining Reimagining the Good Life podcast. Amy Julie Zabeka, she's a, a graduate of Princeton University, and she lives with her husband and her children in Connecticut. Amy Julie, welcome back to the show. It's so nice to be here. Thanks for having me, John. My pleasure, Amy Julia. So when I saw this article, I had to reach out to you immediately because I, I know because you have a Down syndrome child, Penny, uh, and she is about ready to blossom now into her own independent life, which, of course, you've considered, you and your husband. But I, I reached out because I wanted to get your take on this and your knowledge of history of Down syndrome children. Can you talk to us about this? Yeah, um, thank you for reaching out. I had not seen this um, research until you sent it to me, so I was really intrigued. And as you said, it's fascinating what the researchers have determined is because of the ways that these remains were buried, in one case in a house um, and in, I think, a couple cases with some special objects that seemed that were buried with the remains, there was this sense of, like, honoring these very young infants died. Uh, you're right. There's some measure of significance that these cultures or these families gave to these particular children that we don't, you know, we don't know. We don't have more details. And what was fascinating to me is the ways that I think um, what we do know is over time, different cultures and in different historical eras have both honored and essentially, well, dishonored or um, really dehumanized people with Down syndrome. So uh, Native American cultures, not all, but some Native American cultures have traditionally seen people with Down syndrome as having a, a special connection to the spirit world and so have really seen them as these particular gifts, um, like what what can we They've been and they've been honored. Um, we also know that from like ancient Roman times that children with disabilities in general, but Down syndrome, we assume within that, were often left out to die when they were born, that they were just exposed to the elements until they died, and that Christians actually played a large role in changing that. Hmm. So we've got um, early church fathers like Augustine writing about babies who are born with what we now might call a birth defect, something, whether that's something like Down syndrome or other, um, you know, genetic differences, um, saying these are the wonders of God's creation. God created these children, and we might not understand why they look or behave differently, but we need to assume that they have been created in the image of God. And in fact, anything we don't understand is, is a wonder, <laughs> not, um, not a horror, which is really how their culture had been taught to treat them. And then, you know, we move all the way up to the 1800s when a doctor in England, actually, whose last name was Downs, uh, is the person who discovered what we now call Down syndrome. Um, so he said, there's some similarity between these different um, children who I'm treating, both in terms of their facial features and other characteristics. And so that's where we get the language of Down syndrome. So we've only had that terminology for, you know, not even 200 years. And yet we can look back. Actually, there's some ancient art that seems to show um, children with Down syndrome um, in some artistic ways. So we we think, uh, we know that there have been children with Down syndrome, you know, throughout history, of course. Uh, we don't know as much about how they were treated. Um, and it's really intriguing to find uh, things like this report on these bones from, you know, anywhere from 
2,000 to 5,000 years ago. Yes. So the complexity of, of our country here in the United States, of course, I would imagine that uh, Down syndrome children have gone through various um, evolutions uh, of being looked at as, as good and right or someone to be shunned or someone to be institutionalized, perhaps. Yeah. So in our country, you're right. Like if we go back about 100 years to the eugenics mo- movement, mm-hmm. Certainly people in our country and in Europe, kind of other, you know, industrialized countries saw they were in this. um, And this included, sadly, many, many churches and Christians who thought that our we were supposed to be creating the almost like a superhuman um, and that it was good to weed out the um, weak and the unfit. Um, and people with Down syndrome were considered to be a part of that. And so that did, in many ways, lead to horrific things, whether that was, um, you know, as you said, institutionalization. And the uh, legalization of abortion is very much linked to uh, what was seen as a kind of general good thing for women to be able to uh, terminate pregnancies with some sort of genetic difference and Down syndrome being the most common of those. Right. So that goes, you know, that goes back to maybe the 60s. Um, and yet we've also always had, I think, probably most um, loudly in the Catholic Church, but also in Protestantism, um, and certainly in, in recent years within Protestantism, a real sense of hold on, <laughs> what, how can we proclaim the value of every human, um, including very much including people with Down syndrome, and um, not in spite of their differences, but actually as going back to what Augustine said, like uh, as valuable inherently, as created by God, and as inherently beloved. Hmm. But now, Amy Julia, and you know, this is my, my child is 24 years old, so this has been around a long time. When our, our first child was born, uh, my wife had preeclampsia, and so she was admitted to the hospital, and they started mm-hmm. doing genetic testing. And we met regularly as my wife was going through weeks and weeks and weeks of the preeclampsia. And they would say, well, the genetic tests say that, you know, your child may have a a good chance of Down syndrome. We see the nuchal Mm -hmm. fold at the back of the neck. You might want to consider, and they they did say abortion. I mean, so this Mm -hmm. is a thing where we can now essentially eradicate Down syndrome children uh, from American life. Yeah, it's really interesting because you're absolutely right that not only are there prenatal tests um, and now even more, uh, there are many prenatal tests that are less invasive than I'm sure what you and your wife were getting and that can be um, given earlier in pregnancy, just through a simple blood test. Um, and women are offered those tests regularly and routinely. Um, there's also... There are more women who are getting pregnant later in life, like who are older. Um, So what's been interesting is that although more women are, when they find out that they um, are carrying a baby with Down syndrome, more women are choosing abortion. And yet there also are more women who are pregnant with babies with Down syndrome. And so the numbers of births of children with Down syndrome, at least in terms of the most recent data, which is not like totally up to date, but has stayed steady. So um, in America, that is not true in some European countries. There are um, essentially no babies being born with Down syndrome in Iceland and in Denmark for exactly the reasons you mentioned, because the government has said this is something we're going to 
we're going to eradicate. Uh, and we're going to do that through prenatal testing. And what I think that all speaks to is just this really serious um, misunderstanding <laughs> that sees disability and suffering as being one and the same, that sees disability and brokenness as being one and the same, when that's just not true. Um, disability, whether it's Down syndrome or other disabilities, is actually a very natural part of the human condition that all of us will experience in some way at some point in our life. Um, and yes, that's more focused and more magnified in people with Down syndrome and other, uh, you know, genetic uh, disabilities that come. But we have really, I think, misunderstood our humanity when we think, you know, in asking the questions, which I think, at least now, doctors are legally, or at least according to their code of ethics, I should say, um, they must ask in the face of uh, a prenatal diagnosis or even just a prenatal situation where it says, oh, the test suggests that this might be going on. Right. Um, their code of ethics says they must offer an abortion, even if they don't want to. Uh, so it's, yeah, we find ourselves in a place that I think is really um, not just dehumanizing people with Down syndrome, but all of us yes. in thinking that we have to kind of measure up in order to be worthy of life. Yes. Now, with just a couple of minutes left, all that to say, and in my introduction, I did say that you and your husband are parents of a, child, a Down syndrome child. Yes. Her name is Penny, and um, she is now uh, about to blossom into a new life, which, of course, brings a lot of different changes to you and to Penny. Yeah, so Penny just turned 18. She's a senior in high school, and this does really lead to just um, both new fears for us as parents <laughs> as well as new possibilities for sure. her as a young adult. So we are, um, you know, she just applied to a college program wow. that's um, being, Excellent. you know, we're being kind of shepherded through that through um, help here in Connecticut, and we're looking into job opportunities for her, and she is you know, really growing and flourishing and, and living a good life. And we're very grateful. Outstanding. Amy, Julia, thank you for this, uh, for, the, for the history lesson, the, the advocacy to bring us up to speed about uh, Down syndrome children around the world. Before you leave us, take a moment and talk about yourself, your work, your books and your podcast. Oh, thanks. Well, yes. Yeah, so I have been writing and speaking and teaching in the intersection of disability, faith and culture for I don't know, 20 years now, um, I have a podcast called Reimagining the Good Life, which is really um, related to the topics we've just talked about. And then I have a series of books that include a memoir about Penny and her birth. That's a good and perfect gift um, leading up through the most recent one, which is called To Be Made Well, uh, which is talking about um, healing and wholeness and hope. So um, they're all pretty easy to find at amyjuliabecker.com. Very nice. Always a pleasure, Amy, to hear your voice. Thanks so much as always. Thanks, John. Thank you. com to learn more. So while the show has been going on, I, I've been thinking uh, during the commercial breaks uh, about uh, a moon landing that may be taking place right now. Uh, intuitive machines uh, could have made history as the uh, commercial, the first commercial lunar lander. Uh, as attempting to land on the moon, as I said, um, if it's successful, the intuitive machine, uh, machine lander will become the first ever private probe to soft land on the moon and mark the first U.S. landing on the lunar surface since NASA's Apollo 17 mission way back in 1972. Now, this mission is uh, carrying a suite of NASA experiments 
as part of a $118 million NASA contract and several commercial payloads for paying customers as well as some art. Um, and like I said, it, it's going on right now at the uh, NASA channel on YouTube. And uh, as soon as we leave the air here at 6 o'clock, I'm going to click it and see what's going on. I mean, this is super cool. So it was a heartbreaker because right here in the city of Pittsburgh, Astrobotics, uh, just last month, thought that they were going to make history by being the first commercial U.S. lander to land softly on the moon. But shortly after liftoff, there was a fuel leak with inside the astrobotic lander. So it circled around the moon and then came all the way back where it, um, as they say, uh, disintegrated in the environment uh, on the way down from outer space. It was a heartbreak. Uh, they're based on the north side here. They're going to try it again, uh, I think, in a couple of months here with a, another lander. But it would have been nice to make history as Pittsburgh once again uh, at the forefront of space exploration. I remember um, long ago when Apollo was at, at, at Zenith in the late 1960s, 1969, as they first landed on the moon. And then, of course, uh, succeeding Apollo missions, our very own at the time was known as Rockwell International. And Rockwell, based here in Pittsburgh, I mean, they built so many components of Saturn V. I remember being a kid and just thinking, this is so cool. We're so big part of this thing. The Rockwell family lived in Edgewood for many, many years. And so we've got a shot again with a little bit of um, space infamy. We, we thought that we might be the first soft lander from the U.S. to land on the moon, but it didn't happen. So hopefully this did happen. And it, we're going to see a, a new space age exploration. And psychologically, you know, if you're a moon lover, we're going to cross over into some weird territory here. Because just the other night, my kid, he's got a couple of telescopes. We went out in the backyard. The moon's beautiful. Now, of course, it's been so sunny these last several days, not today. But it's been so beautiful that we're looking up at the moon uh, with these big telescopes. But soon, within very soon, within the next five years, we'll land on the moon. And then with easily within the next decade, we will continue to live on the moon. Man will, man and women, full time, which will change things. I mean, I'll think about it. You know, you think when you look up at the moon, desolate for all this millennial, desolate, no one there. And now soon and very soon... People will be on the moon, living, eating, praying, worshiping. Uh, I think it'll change the way we see things. But man is a wonder, is he not? As God's creation. Hey, thanks for being with us today. Always a great pleasure to come along. Uh, the podcast is up and running as soon as we leave the air, wherever you get your favorite podcast. And uh, thanks for being with us. Don't forget to say your prayers. We'll see you tomorrow. God bless. The Ride Home with John and Kathy. A production of Salem Media Group. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.